Do what other people aren't doing. In today's episode, we dive in with Kent Ritter into some phenomenal strategies, technologies, and more that you can apply within your own business that him and his firm has been able to apply to really be able to see scale happening. Over $1.5 billion of assets under management, this firm is huge, but they've been diving into the midsize multifamily space. They've been leveraging technology, and we get into some personal conversations that I think will really open up your eyes to a living a more motivated life. That and more, let's get right to it. This is the Investor Mindset Podcast, and I'm Stephen Pesavento. For as long as I can remember, I've been obsessed with understanding how we can think better, how we can be better, and how we can do better. And each episode, we explore lessons on motivation and mindset from the most successful real estate investors and entrepreneurs in the nation. Today's episode is sponsored by Von Finch Capital. If you're interested in investing alongside me in the same type of real estate opportunities that I personally invest in, then head over to Von Finch Capital and join their private investor network. You can do so at vonfinch.com slash invest. Join me on that next deal. and I look forward to seeing you on the inside. All right, guys, welcome back to the Investor Mindset Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Pesavento. And today I've got a very special guest. Kent Ritter is in the studio. How are you doing today, Kent? I'm doing great, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to dive into things. And as you guys may know, Kent serves as the managing director at the multifamily private equity firm, Bridge Held Asset Management, and creates returns by acquiring and improving mismanaged, undercapitalized, and undervalued properties. He's also the host of Ritter on Real Estate, a podcast that's available also on YouTube, where he dives into impactful interviews and practical tips for investors. So the firm is doing some incredible stuff. Really excited to dive into that and more. Are you ready to get into things? I'm ready. Let's do it. All right. Before we get into what is going on today, I'd love to start out by looking back at earlier in your life. What events or influences from your childhood shaped who you are today? Yeah, that, that, that's a really interesting question. So, um, you know, so a, a major event in my life, I actually lost my father fairly early. I was 14 years old. He, he passed in a car accident. And, um, you know, that, that actually, you know, on, I mean, obviously had a huge impact on me. Um, I think just on, kind of stepping up to be the man of the house, um, you know, taking on more responsibility, really wanting to be that kind of provider, you know, even at a young age, wanting, wanting to just, just make sure that everybody was okay and, and kind of be that, that rock, I guess. And, and I think I've, I've carried that mentality through, through my life in, in just being, kind of a trying, wanting to be a source of strength for people, wanting to be, uh, you know, kind of the person that has it all under control, the one that can, that people can go to, that can help them out. Um, you know, so I think that, that of, of almost everything, I mean, probably had the most impact on, on my life early on and just the kind of the ramifications of that and kind of being, being put into a position of, of, of just really kind of an, an adult, position of, of responsibility at a, at a very early age. Well, it's such a difficult thing to deal with. And as a kid, grief is something that is hard to understand. It's hard to understand for adults. 
people yeah. go through these kind of processes and, you know, it makes you have to grow up pretty early. How do you think that impacted where you are today, you know, based on stepping into that, stepping into that manhood, stepping into being the man of the house, you know, so early in your life? I can relate different reasons, but I'd be curious uh, what your thoughts are. Yeah. So how did that, how did that impact where, where I am today? You know, I, I think it's, so one, one is just an appreciation of life, J- just an understanding that like, on a very deep level that like it can all be over in a second and, and you never know. And, and so just, just the, I think that's given me a drive, it, it, you know, to just want to kind of want to succeed. Uh, I guess I've, I've never been, I've never been one to wait. I've never, I've never liked being told that, you know, Oh, you know, like, like, you know, when, when I was a, I was a management consultant for, for a long time. And, and I, w- I was one of the youngest directors, if not the youngest director, I'm not sure, you know, in my firm and, and, and to get to that next level, uh, you know, I just remember hearing things like, oh, you just gotta, you gotta wait your time. You know, you gotta put in your work, you gotta, you know, blah, 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 pay your dues, all that. Well, you know, I think my, my perspective that, you know, is, is just different. I, I, I just want it. I want it now. I want, I want to succeed now. I mean, you just never know if you're, if you're going to get tomorrow. So I think that's one thing, but I, I think, in general, if you're talking broader than business, I think just the, the appreciation of life, the, the ability to kind of step back and just appreciate the little moments and, and appreciate the, like, I mean, even if it's a bad day, you're, you're, you're here, right? You're, you're breathing and you're alive and you're able to keep going. And I think it also really instilled with me a, a resiliency. Um, you know, you just, you, you get knocked down and, um, you get back up again. It was like a, now I sound like a Chumbawamba song or something, but, uh, but it's so true, I think. And it's in those times that are the most challenging in life that it really creates our character, who we are and gives us that insight. You know, I don't talk about it often, but I lost my sister, my younger sister in a car accident, just a little bit before we met over, over a year ago. And it's that kind of a moment that ends up making you realize what really matters the most. Because within a moment, all of your aspirations of everything you've been working towards, in that moment, all of a sudden, everything you've been stressed about doesn't matter. And that can happen any second of any day. And so I've noticed myself, and you've been living with that lesson for a long time, but I hope the listeners can take it away that it doesn't have to be, obviously it's awful when these things happen, but it's a reminder that we've just got to make the best of whatever moment we have, because we don't know if we have another one. So we better enjoy whatever we're doing today. Yeah. And I think, um, and I'll just share this with you because I didn't realize you'd had such a recent loss, but for, for somebody that's been, you know, 20, gosh, two years down the road now from, from that time, um, you know, it, it, it also just a, a perspective that it does get better, which I think is also just like, uh, like it's, it's never as dark. Like you could be the darkest moment of your life. It's, it's never going to stay that dark forever. Right. I, I mean, I, I went through a very tough time after his, after his death with just a lot of anger, uh, I mean, as a teenager in high school, right. Um, and, 
but I, but I was able to reach a point of, of, of acceptance and just an understanding. And, and, it, and it went from thinking about him and his memory uh, being a painful event to to being a, a joyful thing and, and being an inspiring thing and, and um, actually putting a smile on my face, you know? So it's just, uh, there is, a, there, they say time, time does heal. I mean, time definitely does heal. You also, I think have to do some personal, uh, some personal work as well. But, but I just, I think that, that perspective too, that like, no matter how bad it is, like, like it, it'll get better. Just stick with it. I agree completely. Well, thank you for that lesson for myself and for everyone else here. But fast forward, obviously, you're in the multifamily space. You're working with a firm that has you know over $1.5 billion of assets under management. You guys are doing some pretty interesting things, right? Typical value-add multifamily type strategy. But what I really appreciate from our conversation is that you're doing, you've gone after some different asset classes that a lot of folks don't focus on. And personally, I'm invested in some of these mid-sized multifamily opportunities because of the kind of return profile that's available. But I'd love it if you could talk to us a little bit about what that strategy is and kind of open the eyes to some of the listeners to what that looks like and maybe how they might be able to take advantage of that as well. Yeah, absolutely. So we've... uh We've been operating, the firm's been operating since, since 2008. So you, we've got a track record uh, there. Of, of, and I think it's just a different perspective from folks that, that have, have maybe just started, right, or, or started a couple of years ago and have kind of always been in this hyper-competitive market, right? So, so, so to us, and especially to, to our principals who have been in real estate for 30 plus years, um, seeing where the market is now and the hyper-competitive nature of it, I mean, really uh, caused them to want to, to shift in a different direction rather than just kind of accept it because it's all they've ever known. Cause they're saying, you know, th- things are just out of alignment right now. So all that, all that being said in 2020, we, we took a very conscious shift. Um, really, I would say kind of just added another strategy re- rather than the deviated from, from the strategies that we're currently doing, but added a strategy very specifically focus on properties that are smaller to mid-sized properties in more tertiary markets and properties that are largely what I, what I call mismanaged or undercapitalized and undervalued, right? And what that allows us to do is that allows us to buy at better values and therefore provide better returns for our investors because we're not operating in the hottest markets where, you know, when you go and you bid, you're competing against 30 other people. And when you do that, I mean, just, you're just going to overpay. There's no way to, to win against 30 others and, and really buy at the right, buy it right, you know? And so by focusing in the Midwest, which is where we're based, which always has had a better, better value and higher cap rates, and then, and then niching down into these smaller properties and, and even going into more tertiary markets where we're comfortable because we have a familiarity, but others who, who aren't local, may not be comfortable, um, you know, has, has allowed us to create return profiles today for our investors that, that most investors would be used to seeing, you know, four or five years ago. Whereas in the larger deals that we do, because we do do these large institutional deals, um, the returns ju- just continue to degrade because, because of that, because of cap rate compression, because, uh, and largely due to demand. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it makes sense. And it's a great, thing for people to remember about an idea to go where other people aren't, 
right? If all the institutional investors are going to big cities, if so much money is moving from other asset classes like commercial and hospitality into, you know, institutional multifamily, then we have to ask ourselves a better question. Where else could we find the kind of returns that we're looking for that give us that security while still being able to create a return on the dollar? So what are some of the big challenges that people usually associate with going after these midsize multifamily type properties? And how have you guys kind of overcome that? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question because the hardest thing about a I mean, let's say a, a 40 or 50 unit property is, is how do you manage it, right? Because you can't afford on-site staff. Um, so the management fees, you know, it's a difficult model. Um, you've got to have, you know, you've got to have somebody, you got to have an ability to manage without having people physically there, you know, all the time, because you just can't afford the payroll. So we've leveraged technology to do that. And, and this has been a big focus for us throughout the past really year and a half is really understanding the landscape of, of prop tech, how it impacts multifamily, what's available. And then, and then how can we start to leverage these things to, to create efficiencies? And so one great example, uh, the, the first use case that we really set out to solve was how do you create a contactless leasing process? So how do you create a process where folks can come in through the website, they can sign up, for a tour, they can come in and tour, they can, they can tour, they can do a self-guided tour. And then they can, as they're looking at the property and, and, and viewing the apartment, they can actually sign up for a lease right there, um, all digitally, without ever having to come in contact with someone, which became even more important as, as we got into COVID, right? And just from a safety standpoint. So, you know, things like that have allowed us to create huge management efficiencies um, not having to rely on a property manager or a leasing agent being on site, you know, being able to expand the hours uh, that we're offering tours um, and, and being able to also just control access to the property remotely through an app versus having to, versus having to go there, you know, with, with physical keys. And so that's been a, a really a game changer for us. And it, so one is technology. That's one example. I'd say two is just management strategy. So having an in-house management company like we do allows us to just be more creative and do different things uh, than if than I think if we were working with a third party. So we were able to work with our in-house management company. You know, they they look at things from an investor standpoint. They understand the strategy and what we're trying to achieve. Um, and they understand the value to the investors. And so they're willing to work with us because that's really what they're for is to is to run the property and, and bring value back to the investors versus if you're thinking about a third party management company, their goal is to, is to create profit, right? It's to create a, a margin for themselves. So where we're able to, you know, do things in, in a, a more strategic way with the property management that may, may not be as uh, fruitful for the actual property management company, but it's good for the overall investors. Um, you know, we're just able to do, do things a little differently uh, as far as managing uh, the way that we kind of position our managers, how we divide management over different properties to manage multiple smaller properties, the ability to share maintenance, um, and the ability to work in kind of a, a hub and spoke model where we have, you know, we may have a large property in a city and acquire smaller properties around that and really, really leverage the efficiencies there. I think that's such a big, big point is the fact that by having the intention when you're going to these markets, you're actually looking at purchasing property 
with the intent to purchase many other properties around that property to be able to leverage those people mm-hmm. across each of those individual assets. We've noticed uh, one of our portfolios in Denver that you know because our partners have that kind of efficiency because they understand the market, they're able to get deals at a more effective price and they're able to manage in a way that the institutional investors can't compete with and don't want to. And so the return profile is significantly better than some of these larger deals, at least right now. It's not always the case, right? I mean, large deals are still phenomenal for a lot of reasons. But how do you guys actually do that when it comes to entering a new market or even buying smaller properties in a market you own? Are you literally having folks that are typically in office at one of your larger buildings, the ones who are servicing those smaller buildings around? Or kind of talk to us a little bit on the detail for folks that might be curious. Yeah, sometimes. So if we have, if we have, so for example, we have a, a 50 unit property in Lexington, Kentucky, we, ju- we just purchased. Well, we also have 500 other units in Lexington, Kentucky. We've been in the market for a long time. And so in that one, it is very simple that we're able to, again, use kind of that, that hub and spoke model, right? Where we've got the central, the mothership, if you will, and then we're able to kind of run things, um, run things out of there, you know, share some maintenance and realize efficiencies. So, so that's a very easy one. If we already have a large property in the area, which we, we have large properties in 10 states. So there's, there's quite an area that we can, we can go and search in. Then it's, it's, it's very easy and you see lots of efficiencies. If it's a, if it's a market where we don't have a large property, like I can tell you, we had, in Louisville, Kentucky, we, we have a 30 unit property. Well, we used to have a 300 something unit property there. And, and we actually just sold that last year. Um, so, so now we have this 30 unit property that, that that's there by itself. And I'm confident we're going to acquire more in Louisville because I, I like what's happening in that city. But, you know, right now, the way that we're doing that is we're just, um, you know, we're leveraging uh, kind of scattered site management, if, if you will, where you have one manager who's managing several smaller sites um, and is able to travel in between. And we're, we're heavily relying on the technology, the smart locks that we've put in place, uh, you know, the, the cameras that we have on site to be able to control access to the property and keep eyes on the property without uh, our manager physically having to be there. So it's yeah. just the efficiencies like that are, are allowing us to, um, you know, to, to do these, these types of things that, that a lot of operators wouldn't be able to just manage one thirty unit uh, from afar. Well, I think it's really insightful because a lot of people, you know, have been talking about, oh, you can only be able to build economies of scale if you go and get a hundred plus unit. And, and that can be a great strategy, but it's also good to see that successful operators are able to put these kind of things together and, and build a great business. I'm curious, are you guys still searching for larger units or have you really tailored your focus into this area because you saw an opportunity in the market? No, it's an additional strategy. So we have multiple deal teams within Burge and Hell that are pursuing several strategies. So we'll do, we do ground up development. Uh, we'll do tax credit deals for affordable housing. We have deal teams looking at larger multifamily. We have deal teams looking at smaller multifamily. So there's several strategies that are being deployed under the umbrella of, of Burge and Held. Um, the one thing I'll say about economies of scale, because that's always the, the first thing that people bring up of, oh, well, you can't do small because you don't have economies of scale. Um, 
That's not true. You're just not thinking about economies of scale in the right way. You're thinking yeah. about econo economies of scale from an individual property standpoint. We have economies of scale on an enterprise level across our one and a half billion in assets that we have under management. So when we purchase flooring, we're purchasing flooring directly from China uh, for the entire portfolio and storing it, storing it in warehouses around the country and then shipping that flooring to the property as it's needed. So, you know, we're not having to buy um, you know, only like only 30 units worth of flooring for that 30 unit in Louisville, we're able to pull from our warehouse um, and send the flooring that's needed. But we're still, we're able on an enterprise level to purchase at a much larger scale, which gives us the, those economies of scale, um, you know, far beyond what you get from, from a hundred unit or 200 unit, right? Like people talk about economies of scale. And I think that's, yeah. that's important to understand. And that's one of the reasons why we're able to, to run these smaller properties efficiently and create so much value because we're just able to do it cheaper than, than the last owner was. Um, so it's kind of counterintuitive. Like you have to be big to go small in, in some ways. I definitely, I can see that. And it's funny how when, uh, somebody hears something so many times and within this community, it's been spoken so many times that 100 plus units is the only way to be able to have that scale of property management. And it can be true. It can be true that at times running smaller properties can have more challenges. There are different types of units in different areas. And those challenges are spoken about because they have some truth to them, but that doesn't mean it has to be a limitation. It's when you go and see an opportunity in the market, you figure out how can I make this work and how can I be able to operate these products effectively and efficiently? And that's exactly what you guys have been able to do. So I'm definitely appreciative of that. And, you know, a lot of folks are when they look at a firm like the one that you work in, that you're a partner in, and they hear $1.5 billion of assets under management, they think, wow, that is enormous. That is way bigger than I'm personally in, or maybe even than a lot of the operators that I'm investing in if I'm a passive investor. What have you noticed stepping into a firm with that kind of level of sophistication that is different or that is unique that you just don't see at some of these other firms that are up and coming and growing? Yeah, that's a really good question. There's several things. Um, and, and the way that I, I was introduced to Burge and Held was as a passive investor. I started investing with them in 2016. And that was really how I really got introduced to, to the firm and, and to their programs. And, and all these things impressed me back then as well. Um, one of the, the, probably the most obvious is our ability to do an eight hour, uh, occupied rehab. So we will, we will actually turn a unit while the resident um, is still there. They leave in the morning to go to work and they come home to a brand new apartment. It's, it's an incredible thing to see. Wow. Um, but we'll, we will turn and, and we can do three to five to, to even more units a day in that model. So to get, to give you a sense of the impact this can have, we have a a 750 unit property in, in Indianapolis. And, and we were able to, to completely renovate the entire property, including all the exteriors in 11 months, because we followed this eight hour occupied process. And there, there's actually a, a video on YouTube. There's a time-lapse where, where you condense eight hours down into like three minutes. And it just looks like a, just uh, just organized chaos. 
We're going to have to get a copy of that and we'll definitely include it in the show notes for you guys. So I'm excited to see that as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's cool to see. And, but just, just that level of sophistication because, and, and people may say, well, well, why is that? So why is that important? Or the biggest question I usually get asked is, well, uh, don't the people just tear them up before you're able to actually realize value from, from raising the lease. Right. But, but when you, do, so the reason that we started doing this was because uh, we ran into into issues doing it the old fashioned way, which is the, you know, doing doing them on turn and having the unit down uh, for several weeks, typically, and kind of going through that process. And you run into labor issues, you run into uh, material supply issues. You, 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 it's a disruption for the residents, right? Because there's construction on site. So if we were gonna if we were gonna do that project the old fashioned way, that would have been a three year project. Um, but we were able to come in and knock it out in eleven months. And through those eleven months, we were able to maintain a ninety four percent occupancy. We didn't see an occupancy dip, uh, which is one of the biggest things that'll kill you as you're going through a renovation. It'll kill your returns. Um, and and what usually happens is because we, we don't raise people's rent right away, you can't raise rent in the middle of their lease, but we'll still improve their apartment. So we modernize their apartment. What often happens is people get used to it. They like it. They like living in that nicer apartment and then they renew and they'll renew at the higher, higher rate and, and, and feel fortunate to have lived there for four or five months, you know, at, at the lower price. And so it, it's been extremely effective. It's so important because one of the big benefits that you're doing there is you're improving the quality of the place that these individuals are living in, but you're able to do that across the entire building instead of having different types of people that have different expectations about what the kind of place they're going to be living in, living together, right? And so you're able to actually get that done. And by getting it done in 11 months versus taking multiple years, you're actually removing a lot of the risk from the project because day by day, the project is actually moving forward and construction can be one of the biggest challenges. One of the biggest risks is that execution risk. And so the fact that you can set that up at that kind of economies of scale, what I'm very curious about is just from a behind the scenes, are you actually moving these people's stuff out of their apartment? Are you tearing out cabinets? Like how is this actually happening? Yeah. So, so typically what we'll do is, you know, we'll have, depending on the scope, we'll, we'll have them move like all of their stuff into like one bedroom or, or we've actually had, had them have it moved out into a, like a pod before if we're doing everything. But yeah, you'll see in the time-lapse like floors, cabinets, countertops, appliances, really just about everything except paint because uh, just, you know, limited, just having paint dry and things, you know, it can take a couple of days. So we really do just about everything except paint in that eight hours. And, and, and when we do paint, uh, it, it typically just becomes a two day thing. So it really doesn't uh, expand things that much, but yeah, it's actually moving the folks stuff or, or having them move it. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it, there's a lot of, so it, it took about five or six years to work out this process honestly. And, and because of all those logistical things that you would think have to occur, the coordination of, of the subs, um, it's just, it, it is kind of a, kind of like a ballet as, as, it go, at the, as they go in there and everybody's got to be on point. Um, and it's got to be closely managed. So it's not something that came overnight for sure. Yeah, well, that, that's huge. Well, this has been phenomenal. We've made it to the growth rapid fire round where the questions are quick, but your answers don't need to be. So let's talk about success. How would you define success and what is success to you? Man, that's a good question. Success to me is 
this having the freedom to 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 live the life that I want to live, to to work on the projects that I want to work on, uh, to work with the people I want to work with, and and just as important, not work with the people I don't want to work with, and and have the ability to uh, spend the time with my kids and, and my wife that I want to, and be the kind of husband and father that that I always wanted to be. And I mean, that was one of one of the main. It was the main catalyst that really set me off from leaving my career as a management consultant and um, pursuing real estate, what well, was that time freedom? Yeah, that time freedom can be such a big driver. And so habits, what are some of those keystone habits that have been able to lead to that foundation of success that you're building? Yeah, so just setting goals, uh, prioritizing and being being very clear on, on what's important, I think is, is extremely extremely important. Um, so goal setting, I think meditating. So I, I meditate daily. You know, I'm a, I'm a big miracle morning follower. You know, I, I think it's a great, uh, great way to start the day. I think it's a great habit to develop. Um, and yeah, and I think, I think those things, as far as what has led to my success, um, the other, the other, ha- like, I guess you kind of call it, call this a habit or a routine, but just the networking and creating connections. And I mean, that, that has propelled the connections I've created have propelled my career, you know, light years uh, beyond you know, probably where I should be at, at this point, really have started investing in real estate about, about five years ago. So um, I think just creating connections and, and very intentionally going out and networking and putting, putting yourself out there. Yeah, I think that's some really great advice. So inspiration, what impact have mentors made on your life? And how do you recommend others go and find great mentors? Yeah, so so kind of right along the lines of connections, right? Mentors have had a huge impact on my life. Um, so for example, I mean, Burgeon Held, right? I started there as a passive investor, um, just built relationships with them over time. Uh, Tag Burge, uh, the Burge of Burgeon Held, he become a close mentor of mine. Uh, he, he helped me as I was kind of coming up doing my own deals and then, and then offered to, to have me come on and join their firm uh, and, and work under their umbrella and, and on their uh, very advanced platform and be able to do my deals on their platform. So I've uh, been very beneficial. Um, you know, I, I have other mentors, um, you know, in, in several other areas, you know, whether it's kind of podcasting and marketing or, and just life. And so mentors have had a huge impact on me. I think, how do you go out and find mentors? Well, well, I have a mix of paid and unpaid mentors. So the paid mentors, that's pretty straightforward, right? You can find somebody who's been successful and has a program and, and sign up. And, and and those are great because those, I think paid mentorships are great for from an accountability standpoint, because it's something that you've, you've had to put some skin in the game on. Um, and they're there to really help hold you accountable. Uh, for unpaid mentors, I, I think you, you've got to seek to call it seek to serve or, or seek to add value first. I mean, that, that's how I tried to approach things. Um, it doesn't have to be grand gestures, but you know, I'll give you an example. So, so with tag, um, you know, he was gracious enough, uh, to, to meet me, meet me for lunch. You know, one day I reached out to him. He was great. Uh, willing to have lunch with me. We start talking. Uh, I'm thinking, man, how can I add value to this guy's life? Right. This guy, you know, has everything, runs this giant business. He's doing fantastic. But I had just read the book uh, by principles by Ray Dalio. 
And so I, I thought it was a great book. Uh, uh, so I bought a copy. I, uh, I wrote, a, wrote a nice letter and, and I sent it to him. And, you know, a couple of days later, you know, Tad calls me up and he's, and he's like floored. He's like, thank you so much for this. It's such a thoughtful gift. Like I've been meaning to read this. Um, and so, you know, it doesn't have to be big things, but I just think, you know, trying to add value first to, to those mentors or people that you'd like to have mentors, I think is, is the way to approach it. Um, don't just go asking to pick their brain. I think that that's what a lot of people that are, that are very busy and successful, they get a lot of that and they really don't like that. And so you need to differentiate yourself in some way. That's some great advice. Well, this is phenomenal. It's been great diving in, getting to know you even better and sharing some amazing stuff with the audience. Where can people find out more about you or get in touch? Sure. So I'm a pretty easy guy to find. You can go to kentritter.com and that's kind of my home base. Um, you can check out the podcast there, my blog. Uh, I've got some, some freebie materials for folks that are interested in, in especially passively investing. Uh, also, my podcast, Ritter on Real Estate, where uh, we're focusing on, on how to make better investing decisions. And other than that, on social media, I'm very active on, on LinkedIn and on Instagram. So, you know, I'm easy to find if you want to track me down. Love it. Well, it was really great talking with you and thanks so much for being here. And I definitely look forward to the next time we get to hang out. Thanks, Stephen. It was great talking with you, man. Thank you for listening to the Investor Mindset Podcast. If you like what you heard, make sure to rate, review, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Head over to theinvestormindset.com to join the Insider Club where we share tools and strategies from the top investors and entrepreneurs on how to take it to the next level.